So ladies and gentlemen, this is a very special edition of the Entrepreneur Adventure Podcast. We are doing a replay of a recording from Misty Jesse Itzler from the Stronger Business Summit, because this is the official podcast of the Stronger Business Summit. Chad, let us know what we're expecting here. Man, Jesse is about to deliver 52 minutes of the most exciting, impactful, motivational content you could ever imagine to start 2021. I'm pumped for Jesse to share his message with you. I'm pumped with all of the notes you're going to take here and all you're going to learn. I continue to listen to this over and over and over. Love Jesse. Love what he's doing on Instagram and the things he's sharing. Uh, It's making a huge difference in my life. This is going to be amazing. We've both heard this talk several times, but we'll both also still listen to this episode when it comes out. Jesse Edsler done so many phenomenal things. He talks about setting your mission. He talks about goals. If this is the podcast to listen to, to start off your 2021. So without any further ado, here's Mr. Jesse Itzler. Right. I love that. Hey, guys. Good to see everybody. I heard you had some great speakers here today. I appreciate that introduction, Josh. I hate introductions. I got shell-shocked at an introduction in 1991, and I'm still not over it. Right after college, I was signed to a record label called Delicious Vinyl. And Delicious Vinyl had two huge acts at the time. One was a guy named Tone Loke. Some of you might remember Tone Loke. Wild thing, you're nodding your head, funky cold Medina. And the other was a guy named Young MC who won a Grammy for his song called Bust a Move. I was the next artist signed to Delicious Vinyl. And right before my album came out, I got a call from the owner of the record company who told me that they're having a huge concert actually in Atlanta, here in Georgia, at the Georgia Dome. And they were busing in 36,000 inner city kids from all over the state of Georgia for this concert that they coined the Increase the Peace concert because they were going to have black artists and white artists come together in this community bonding event that they called Increase the Peace. The day before the concert, Vanilla Ice canceled and they needed a white rapper. They volunteered me to be the white act. So I get to the venue. As soon as I get to the venue, I recognize immediately like the place is unruly. There's fist fights going on in the stand, and police are everywhere, and they're putting the house lights on to control the kids. And the kids are booing every single act that came on stage. They booed them off stage. So the first guy up was LL Cool J in his prime. They boo LL Cool J off the stage. I'm over here in the green room about to go on next to sing my song called Shake It Like a White Girl. So I called my mother. I'm like 20, I'm 19 years old. I call my mother. I'm like, Mom, I got a really big problem, man. They're booing LL. And she said, Sweetie, just be yourself and they're going to love you. I'm like, It doesn't work like that, Mom. So the MC gets up. He's like, Ladies and gentlemen, all the way from California, IA, give it up for my main man, Jesse James, which is my stage name. Do not Google it. Please don't Google it. It's ugly. So I'm about to go on stage, and the, the record company gave me all these promotional t shirts. So I grab some of these promotional t-shirts as I go on. I get on the stage. I'm looking at the kids in the front row, and they're pissed off that I'm even invited to the venue. But I got these t-shirts. So I'm like, does this section over here want some free t-shirts? The kids go crazy. I threw them out. The section to my right, you want some free t-shirts? They went nuts. I threw them out. Middle section, back there, you want some t-shirts? They went crazy. I threw them out. I said, thank you very much. Salt and pepper's up next. I got the fuck out of there, man. 
never let them boo you is the first rule of business. You might be looking at me and saying, this guy looks ridiculous with this thing going on. I don't always look like this. I had a quarantine beard, and I'm going to see my dad. My dad's got a bad case of Alzheimer's. He went really down, downhill the last couple of weeks, and he doesn't recognize me with the beard. So I'm, going to, I'm rotating with my brother and my sisters to stay with my mom and take care of our, of our dad. And I wanted to shave my beard, but I'm like, I'm going to have a little fun before I take it all off. So this is for my kids, and it's staying like this until, uh, until Sunday when I go. Before I get started, very quickly, uh, this spotlight is totally cool, no problem, but it's freaking me out. Um, I'm really glad that I can see today. A couple of months ago, I ran a race called The Last Man Standing. And the format of The Last Man Standing is it's a 4.2-mile loop. You have an hour to complete it. If you finish the loop in, let's say, 50 minutes, you have a 10-minute break because they line everybody up again at the top of the hour to repeat the 4.2-mile loop, and they keep doing this on and to on until there's one person left standing, the last man standing. So there were 115 uh, ultra runners at, the, at this event. Um, I came in fifth. I was the oldest man standing at 52. Yes. I did like 80 miles, 20-something hours, whatever, but... I had uh, four or five friends that were in my crew that were taking care of me when I came in every loop. And we had one rule of thumb. And that was, no matter how bad I looked, no matter how tough it was, no matter what I was going through, whatever I was going through, they had to say something positive. Because once we go negative, it's really hard to come out of that. That was the only thing these guys had to do. So I came in at a mile, around mile, like, I don't know, 70, 75, and because I had a, a headlamp on at night and I was running through the woods, it created like um, a strobe light effect, and I literally couldn't see. So I sat down in the chair and I said to my friend Matt, I said, Matt, man, I got a really big problem. He's like, what's that? I'm like, I can't see. He's like, what's the problem? I'm like, Matt, I can't see, man. That's why he said, no, that's really common amongst ultra runners. He said, get up out of the chair, finish the other loop, follow the guy in front of you, and we'll see you the next loop. So I did that, and I came back in, and the next day, Matt called me up, and he goes, Jess, I just want to see how you're feeling. How's your eyesight? I said, it's, it's starting to come back, Matt. Thanks. Why do you ask? He said, because I've never heard that happening ever before in my life. This light is bringing me back to that moment. Well, thanks for having me here. I want to share a little bit of my journey as an entrepreneur. It was very unconventional, completely unorthodox. But I think by sharing some of the stories that I went through, there'll be little nuggets that everybody in this room can apply to your own individual journey as an entrepreneur and in other buckets of, of your life. So first, a little bit about me. I went to um, American University. Anybody here? American University? <laughs> Great. I didn't think so. I didn't recognize you guys. Uh, well, the average tuition that, uh, right now, the annual tuition at American University is $40,000 a year. So for four years of tuition, $160,000 of my parents' money, I can honestly say I remember one thing from college. I call it the $160,000 lesson. So my, my senior year of college, I was at a crossroads. I was either going to the music business, which I love, or I was going to sell a product called Aunt Franny's Brownies. I had a roommate in college that had an Aunt Franny, and every month she sent us a shipment of brownies, and I don't know what she put in these brownies, but they made everybody laugh. 
It's like, I can market these brownies. People, they're making people happy, happy brownies. So for my advertising class senior year, we had to create a fictitious brand from scratch, a full ad campaign, billboard, jingle, which I was good at, packaging, all this stuff. So I said, okay, I'm going to use this classroom as my R&D department. If they like Aunt Franny's brownies, I'm just going to roll out the ad campaign I do and go into the brownie business. So the way the final exam was set up, this is what we had to do for our final exam, there were about 100 kids in the classroom, everybody had to hand in their full campaign, but the professor was going to pick five students at random to present an oral presentation, a 30-minute state of the union of the industry you were going into. I'm a senior in college. There's a 5% chance that I'm going to get picked for the oral presentation. Like, nobody prepared for the oral presentation. You didn't want to get picked. So we come into the classroom and the professor says, I'm going to do this a democratic way. Everybody write down your name on a piece of paper. I'm going to take off my hat, pass it around, and I'll pick the five people that are going to present in front of the class. Sitting to my right in the classroom is a guy named Ronnie Cohn. Ronnie Cohn was a professional jackass. No. Ronnie Cohn bullied half of the class for four years of college. So when the professor came to me, I took 20 pieces of paper, I wrote Ronnie Cohn's name down, and I stuffed it in the hat. The professor goes, there's a true story, the professor goes around, gets all the names, pick out, picks out the first name. Sure enough, the first name that comes up, Jesse Hitzler, the jackass, did the same thing. I swear. So I get up there to pitch Aunt Franny's brownies in front of this classroom, and 30 seconds into my presentation, for $160,000 of my parents' hard-earned money, the professor said, stop. He said, son, I want to know, what is your point of differentiation? I was like, what? What does that mean? He said, what makes your brownie different than all the other brownies on the market? And I was like, oh, I'm home-baked. I'm moist and delicious. I could be gluten-free if you want me to be gluten-free. He said, no. He said, son, there's a thousand brownies that come out every year in this country. Substituted for marketing executive, restaurateur, clothing guy, ad set, whatever you do, any of you, there's a thousand of people just like you that come out all the time. He said, if you want to make it, your brownie has to be different than all the other brownies in the market. Sit down. So I sat down embarrassed in front of my whole classroom. And from that moment on, as a 20-year-old kid at American University, I've always asked myself, what makes my product different? How is this different from everything else in the market? How could I retain my customers differently? <laughs> How do I look different? How do I do it differently? And at that point in my life, I'm like, I have a point of differentiation. I'm a rapper. I'm white. I'm, gonna, I'm going into the music business. So at that point in my life, I'd never been in a studio, I don't play an instrument, I had no connections. In fact, the only way that I could make a demo was to take an instrumental, the music portion of a, DVD, of a CD, put it in the CD player in my dorm room. While the music was playing, go over to my answering machine, hit record, and leave a little rap. And that was my demo. And I sent that demo to every record company in the country, and I got no responses. So I rejigged my calendar uh, senior year, so I had no classes on Friday. And every Friday, I took a Greyhound bus seven and a half hours from Washington, D.C. to New York City, and I would sit in the lobby of a different record company every Friday. And anyone that came out of the door, from janitor to CEO, I would hand them that little demo that I made in my dorm room. And I got no responses. So I realized with no connections, no money, the only way I could possibly get discovered was to drive traffic to my answering machine. 
So I started leaving little raps on my answering machine and calling music executives and producers, hoping they would call my machine and I would get discovered. It worked. I got a call from a producer who heard that this is about this kid that was leaving raps. He said, man, there's something here, but we got to professionalize this. I just got a job working in New York City, in Queens, at a studio. The last session ends at 1 a.m. The next session starts at 9 a.m. If you can come to New York, I'll sneak you in the studio when I clean up and we'll record a proper demo. So after college, I moved back to New York where I'm from, to Long Island. I took a job as a kiddie pool attendant because that was the only job that allowed me to ride my bicycle 21 miles every night at 1 a.m. from Roslyn, Long Island, where I'm from, to Corona, Queens, to the studio to record my demo, ride my bike, bike back 21 miles to get to the kiddie pool in time to make some damn money. So one day I get to the studio in the morning at 1 a.m. and sitting on the mix board is a cassette. And it's a cassette that changed the trajectory of my life. So the cassette was by a Brooklyn-born hip-hop artist named Dana Dane. It doesn't matter if you know who Dana is or not, but Dana was a big rapper in the 80s. His first album was a huge hit. His second album was highly anticipated, but nobody heard it because he just finished recording it and left it by accident on the mix board the session before me. I said to the engineer, I'm like, can I take this? Like, this is a gold mine of ideas for a kid like me. I'm like a huge Dana fan. I said, he said, take it, you just got to return. So I take the cassette. A day later, I'm flying out to LA to visit a friend. I'm listening to it, not to date myself, 52, on my Sony Walkman on the airplane. And I'm reading in a magazine that the owner of Delicious Vinyl Records, this guy Mike Ross, his favorite artist is Dana Dane. So when we land, I cold call the label. And that's a theme in my life. I believe as an entrepreneur, it's important to create your own luck, to put yourself in a position where you can attract luck. Luck doesn't happen sitting at your couch on a Sunday night watching the Kardashians. Luck happens when you insert yourself into the world and the universe and good things happen. I land, I cold call, I get all the way up to Mike Ross's assistant. I said, hey, I'm Jesse, I'm a friend of Dana's, I know that Mike likes Dana. There's an old saying by Harry Truman, if you can't convince him, confuse him. This lady had no idea what I'm talking about. She puts me on hold. She comes back a minute later and she goes, Dana, Mike is so excited to meet you. If you could be here at 2 o'clock, Mike would love to buy you lunch. Dana will be there at 2 o'clock. 2 o'clock comes. I buzz myself in. I have an appointment for Mike Ross. Boop. They boo, they whisk me into this crazy office with all these gold records and platinum records. I sit down in this chair, no agenda, I just want to get my demo heard. I'm sitting in my little chair and in walks Mike Ross. And he looks at me and he goes, who in the world are you? I said, I'm Jesse, I work with Dana. He said, you work with Dana, what do you do? I said, I rap. Then he insulted me, he goes, that's impossible. I said, no, I really do. I said. Do you mind, while we wait for Dana, do you mind if I put my demo in? And he goes, sure. And I'm thinking to myself, that's a really good thing because we're going to be waiting a really long time for Dana. He's in Brooklyn. He doesn't even know I exist. So I put my demo in, and 30 seconds in, he stops me, and he says the four words that every struggling artist wants to hear. Who is your lawyer? I got a record deal. But I didn't have a lawyer. I had a dad. My dad owned a plumbing supply house in Mineola, Long Island. And I'm like, my dad's my lawyer. He goes, your dad's a lawyer? I said, my dad handles everything for me. He goes, great, I'll coordinate everything with your dad. I leave and I call my father and I'm like, dad, it's your son. I'm in LA, I'm okay. You're not gonna believe this, man. I got a record deal. 
I got a record deal, but don't screw it up, because my father's from Brooklyn. He could be like, you take advantage of my son, I'm going to come out there with the wrench. I said, all I want you to do when they call is say, please fax all the documents to my assistant. And my father said, I don't have an assistant. And I'm like, yes, you do. Mom. They faxed all the documents to my mother, and I signed them sight unseen. Boom. Big mistake. But then I made a bigger mistake. I took my foot off the gas pedal. I celebrated. I hit my goal. Instead of checking the box and resetting my goal, and I want to sell X amount of records and make the best album, I celebrated. When we get a win, when we create momentum, you got to step on the gas, man. You got to accelerate it. I did the opposite. I got dropped from the label. I moved back to New York City at 22 years old with two things on my resume. Kitty pool attendant, rapper. That's not going to get you on this stage. But my wife always says you find your true purpose at the intersection of these three things. What it is you love to do, what you're good at, and providing a product or service that helps people. If you figure out what it is you love to do, you get really good at it, and you're helping people, you've really found your purpose. I love sports. I love the music. I decided to combine those two things, and I wrote a theme song for the New York Knicks, the basketball team in New York. The Knicks paid me um, $4,000 for the song. By the time I paid the producer, singer, studio, drummer, the lawyer that I now had, it cost me $4,800 to do the song. They paid me $4,000. It cost me $4,800. Is that a good business model? Is that a good business model? It's an amazing business model. Because when you start out in business, people buy into people, stories, and momentum more than products. People buy into the people and the stories and the momentum behind that more than the product. Man, you're the business plan. You are the business plan. I would have paid the Knicks $5,000. I would have wrote them a check for five grand to say that I was a client of the Knicks, that I did their song. And a funny thing happened. The Knicks got hot this year. Create your own luck. The Knicks got hot that year. And the song became the number one most requested song on New York radio. And every team that came into Madison Square Garden to play the Knicks was like, why don't we have a song like that? And I said, man, that's how my brownie's different. Everybody's trying to write songs and get in the, in, in, in the record store and do concerts. Nobody's writing theme songs for professional sports teams. There's 100 teams. I'm a pretty good salesman. I'm going to sell them all. There'll be plenty of efficiencies. I'll get my costs down. So I set up a company to write theme songs for professional sports teams. A year later, I sold that company to a public company called SFX. The owner of SFX had a timeshare on a private jet. And he invited my partner and I as guests on his private plane. I think I was like, I don't know, 26 or 27 years old. And when I walked onto this private jet, it was like the scene in The Wizard of Oz, when everything in life goes from black and white to color. I was like, what? People fly like this? I want to fly like this. And by the time we landed, my partner and I were like, let's start a private jet company so when we travel, we can travel on private planes. It's like, definitely, except we had no airplanes. We had no money. We didn't know anybody rich, but we had an idea. And our idea was so simple. You never know when a good idea is going to hit you out of nowhere. We are all one idea, one referral away from changing the entire trajectory of our life. 
And our idea was so simple. What if we could provide everybody in this room with all the benefits of owning their own private jet, but none of the responsibilities? You call up, your plane's available anywhere in the country on six to eight hour notice. You don't have to take your shoes off. You can bring your friends. And what if we made it affordable? Like you pay $100,000 for these 25 hours and it works like a debit card. You fly from Atlanta to New York and your 25 hour, it's a two hour flight. Now you have 23 hours on your jet card. We call that brilliant idea marquee jet, but we had no airplanes. So we took a meeting with the 800-pound 800, 800 gorilla, NetJets, a Warren Buffett-owned company, Berkshire Hathaway, the largest private jet card company, the largest private jet company in the world, 650 private jets in the fleet, a multi-billion dollar operation. And we get a meeting with the CEO, Rich Santulli, with this amazing PowerPoint. And we pitch our idea of marquee jet. And 12 minutes into the meeting, Santulli stops the meeting and literally throws us out. And this is exactly what he said. This really pissed me off, but this is what he said. He said, guys, get out of here. He said, if you think I'm giving two 28-year-old kids that probably didn't break 1,000 on their SAT, which really pissed me off. I got a 980 on my SAT. I convinced myself I've broken 1,000. Access to my airplanes, it's never happening. Get out. So he throws us out of the room, and we're leaving the room dejected. There goes our great idea. And the, CEO, uh, the president, Jim Jacobs, comes out, grabs my arm. He goes, that was unbelievable. I said, Jim, we got thrown out in 12 minutes. He goes, Rich Santulli doesn't give anybody 12 minutes. There's something here. I could see some Come back next week and bring this presentation to life. Repitch this. So we came back a week later, and we realized we could never sell Santulli in a PowerPoint. The guy sees 100 PowerPoints every week. Our brownie had to be different. So we brought in our own focus group. We set up a table by the boardroom's table, and one by one, eight people came in. Carl Banks from the New York Giants, Run from Run DMC, a powerful female real estate mogul from New York. And one by one, they stood up and said they would never buy a fraction of a plane what NetJets was selling, but they would buy a 25-hour jet card. By the end of the meeting, Santuli said, if you guys put up your own money or raise a little money, I'll give you a shot. A year later, we were bigger than NetJets. We did $5 billion in cumulative sales, and we sold that company to Berkshire Hathaway, to Warren Buffett's NetJets, a Berkshire Hathaway company. The first thing that you do, as any of us, as an entrepreneur, the first thing we had to do is establish credibility. What's the first thing you got to do? You got to establish credibility, because if I was going to sell this gentleman, what's your name? Rob, Robbie. Robbie, Tom on an airplane, and he said, well, who flies with you? I'm like, well, Robbie, my dad, my next door neighbor. He'd be like, what? But I'm like, Robbie, LeBron James flies with us. Bill Clinton flies with us. He'd be like, wow, this is real. They must have vetted it. And the second thing you have to do as an entrepreneur, all of us, is figure out, man, how do I get from point A to point B the fastest? And for us, that was celebrity. If we could get credibility and speed up the process, it was by signing up celebrities or athletes. So I was in charge of the entertainment vertical. So one day I'm going to my office in January. I live in New York. I'm 30-something years old, 20-something years old. And I only wore shorts until I was 35 years old. So I'm in shorts. I'm in a taxi cab. It's the middle of January. And I get a ding on my device. If I get a ding on my device, that means we have a customer. It's like, we have a customer? It's like we, have, we won the Super Bowl. What? I look at my device and it says that Matt Damon... Ben Affleck and Affleck, Flick, Flack, whatever his name is, and Jennifer Lopez want to demo, try our product, and fly from L.A. to the Sundance Film Festival. I'm like, that's the entire entertainment vertical 
right there on the airplane. So I said to the cab driver, I'm not going to my office. Take me to LaGuardia. So I divert in my shorts, no bags, to LaGuardia. I get a flight on Delta. I fly out to L.A. I head over to, to, to the private terminal because I got to close them. I got to close them. So as I'm in the cab, going, uh, the car going over to the private terminal, I get another ding on my device. And it says that just by chance, they got a scheduling upgrade to the Boeing business jet. The Boeing business jet is a $55 million airplane. There's two of them in the whole country configured the way we had it. It's, it's ridiculous. It's like Air Force One. It has a media room and a bedroom and a shower. It's ridiculous. They happen to get a scheduling upgrade that day. So I head over and I see, take out my business card. I see Jennifer Lopez. I said, Miss Lopez, my card. I'm Jesse Itzler. I'm the co-founder of this company, ma'am. We got you this amazing upgrade today, sort of. And she looks at me and she goes, how old are you? I said, well, ma'am, I'm 28 years old. She said, you're 28 years old and you own this airplane? Warren Buffett owns the airplane. I looked at her dead in the eye and I said, yes, I do. <laughs> she comes a little closer to me. She's like, how many airplanes are these airplanes you have in the fleet? I said, well, Miss Lopez, we have 650 of these airplanes in the fleet. She said, you own 650 of these airplanes? I looked at her dead in the eye and I said, yes, I do. Now, I would never do that now, but there were no consequences when I was young. I knew this. So I said, in fact, I'm going to Sundance too. I'm just going to fly with the crew, and if you guys need anything, let me know. I head up with the crew. We get up to 41,000 feet. I got to pitch them and close them. So I come out of my seat. I said, Matt, I'm Jesse. I start giving him my speech. I said, look, man, you seem like a good guy. I'm busy right now. I'm getting ready for our big project green light event tonight. But you seem like a cool guy. If you're not doing anything tonight, why don't you come to our launch party? It's going to be a small, intimate gathering, and we can talk about your private jet company there. I said to him, I'm thinking to myself, doing anything tonight? Like, I don't even have a hotel room. Okay, Matt, let me see if I can change my plans. I would love to try to make it to your private event. So we land the airplane, and they get in, the, in their limos, and they get, I got to wait for them to get out of sight. I get a little taxi cab. I go 30 miles to the only hotel, a Motel 6, that I can find. I head over to the Gap. I get an outfit pretty similar to this, and I head over to the Intimate Affair. Well, Matt, you're wrong. It's not a small Intimate Affair. There's 4,000 people trying to get through one guy with a clipboard, and I know you didn't put me on the list. But I also know I don't negotiate my goals. We don't, as entrepreneurs, we don't negotiate our goals. Whatever the end of the movie is in our head, the plot might change. The script might change. But the end of the story, it's unwavering. I'm leaving with the sale. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. I get to the line, get to the guy with the clipboard. I take off my, out my license. I go, I'm Jesse Itzler. He looks on the list. He goes, you're not on the list. I said, I know I'm not on the list. I'm on Matt and Ben's advanced scout team. They're in the hotel. They sent me here because they're not leaving until I call them up and tell them the VIP room is set up exactly the way they want it. The guy's like, okay. Goes like this and in I go. So I go over to the VIP section, like Clooney's got a table, Pitt's got a table. Um, you guys remember Paulie, when I say guys, I mean guys and girls. Do you guys remember Paulie Shore, anyone from MTV? Yeah, Paulie Shore's got a table next to Matt Damon's table. So I take Paulie Shore's name card, I get rid of it, I get a new piece of paper and I write Itzler. Put it on the table. Now my table is next to Matt Damon's table. If you don't have a seat at the table, you make one. 
No, that's how this works. We got to make our own luck. You make your seat at the table. Matt comes in, he's like, oh, I said, Matt, thanks so much, man. You got me the best table. We start talking. I start talking about the program, but it's too loud. I can't hear him. I said, Matt, I can't hear you. When are you going back to L.A.? He goes, I'm going back on Sunday. And I'm like, so am I. Why don't you fly with me? He's like, really? I said, yeah, I'll set it up with your assistant. So I leave and I call my partner. He's like, did you close them? I'm like, not exactly. I need a G4. For what? I'm like, to close them on Sunday. He goes, that's our entire, we had to pay for our flight time. He goes, that's our entire marketing spend for the whole year. I said, man, that's all the credibility we need for a lifetime. And we go back and forth and finally we decide we're going to basically risk most of our money on this one flight. And he puts all this pressure on my shoulders. My friend Tim Grover always says, pressure's a privilege. Pressure is a privilege. As entrepreneurs, as business leaders, we play for pressure. Behind the wall of pressure, pressure weeds everybody else out. Behind the wall of pressure is usually where the gold is. As a 28-year-old kid, I wanted that pressure on my, on my shoulders. And by the time we landed, I signed all three of them up. And then what happened? I did what everybody in this room would do. I serviced the heck out of them. They, I did what, they, what everybody here would do. I answered the phone when they called. I carried their bag to the airplane. I did anything they wanted to do, but I did the unexpected. They didn't expect when they got to the airport, when they're going to Mexico, to get a list of babysitters, restaurants, things to do, fishing rods, reservations already booked for them. I did the unexpected. I did the three things I've done my entire career that anybody can do to build deep, meaningful, authentic relationships to get customers to root for me and never want to leave me, to get my team, my employees supporting me, to root for me, to do more. I complimented them, I congratulated them, and I consoled them. What does that mean? Robbie, Robbie. Hey, it's Jesse. I just want to let you know, man, I'm a father of four, and I love the way you parent. Like, it's unbelievable. It's inspiring to, wait, to see the way you spend time with your kids and watch how you parent, man. I just want to let you know you're doing an unbelievable job. Robbie's not on the cover of the Wall Street Journal. Robbie didn't win the Super Bowl when everybody's calling him. You call people and you, you compliment them authentically when they don't expect it so it's memorable and meaningful and authentic. Robbie, I heard your kids got into uh, University of Georgia. I, if my son gets into the University of Georgia, I'm going to be on cloud, I'm on, Sarah and I, my wife, we're on cloud nine for you and your family, man. Every opportunity you get to compliment somebody in your life, I mean, congratulate, you congratulate them, and you console. I had one of the worst things that could happen to a parent happen to my wife and I. And I get a knock on my door the next day. It's my friend Dougie Fresh, the rapper. I said, Doug, what in the world are you doing here? He said, when you get news like that, you don't call you show up. If you compliment people, you congratulate people, and you console people, great things are going to happen. So what happened? They gave me a referral. And I did it again. And again. And again. And again. And again. And again. Until we did $5 billion in sales. During my journey at Marquee Jet, I wanted to raise money for charity, but I didn't want to have a, uh, uh, have a golf outing. All my friends were having golf outings. Like, hey, you want to buy a, a twosome or a foursome? Golf outing, that's great. I'm not knocking it, but I wanted my brownie to be different. 
So I decided I was going to run 100 miles nonstop in under 24 hours. I signed up for the USA National Ultra Marathon Championship because you didn't have to qualify. For $65, anybody could be in the national championship. I'm like telling my friends, guys, I'm running in the national championship. And once I sent in my registration for $65, I immediately Googled, how do you run 100 miles? And everything that came out was a 12-month training program. The race was in 67 days. I went from couch to 100 miles in 67 days. And the way that I did it is I became an expert. I called everybody that completed a 100-mile race, like 380 Americans or something that did it at this time. I called them all. I started to realize and piece together that they were no different than me. They just wanted it so badly. And I'm like, their want was bigger than their obstacles. And I'm like, I can want this really badly. And I finished the race. I finished it in 22 hours, something. Put me in a wheelchair for four days, but I finished the race. When I got to mile 83, I had seven toenails floating around in my shoes. I don't negotiate my goals, man. And during my training for the race, I did a lot of research around hydration and nutrition. If you're going to run 100 miles, how many calories do you need? How many ounces of fluid do you need? And everything pointed to coconut water. And I became the human guinea pig for coconut water. And when I finished this race without cramping and feeling relatively good, I'm like, this is going to be the next big thing in beverage. So I spent a year traveling the globe trying to figure out how to import coconut water. And I realized, like, I did get a 980 on my SAT because I could not figure that shit out. <laughs> but I knew I could market and sell it. So I partnered with a company called Zico, Z-I-C-O. Again, how do you get from A to B the fastest? And um, they were doing about three or four million dollars in sales. Two years later, we sold that company to Coca-Cola. My wife is an entrepreneur. She owns a company called Spanx. I'm sure some of the women know Spanx in here. We have four young kids uh, under the age of 11. We live in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, four years ago, we became part owners with a group of friends in the Atlanta Hawks. And when I look back on my business journey, two themes run steady that I want to share with everybody. The first is I had no prior experience in anything that I did. I didn't have any aviation experience, music experience, beverage experience. And for a lot of people, not having experience can be the biggest crusher of a dream. Like, I always, always wanted to open a restaurant, but I don't know anything about the food business or marketing. I always wanted to run a marathon, but I don't even know where to start training or whatever. But for me, it was the greatest blessing. Because it guaranteed that everything that I did would be different than everybody else. It guaranteed that I would have different results from everybody else. I always say to my employees, if nobody taught you how to do your job, how would you do it? If you ripped up the industry playbook that everybody's been using, the same people in the industry have all been using it for the last 50 years, Robbie, how would you do your job? How would you retain customers? How would you market your product? That's where innovation comes from. The second thing is when I started out, man, I was so young, I had no time to be scared. And once you get over the fear of being embarrassed, it's the most liberating gift you can give, you, give to yourself. Now, I don't like to be embarrassed. I bet nobody in this room likes to be embarrassed, but I'm not scared of it. But it wasn't always like that for me. When I was in college, senior year, I was taking this class, classroom the size of this classroom, hundreds of people, and I, I like this girl. She sat over there in the corner. I sat all the way over here. She didn't even know I existed. For six months, I had a full-blown relationship with this girl in my head. No, no, no. Let me explain this to you guys. I dated this girl 
intimately in my head for six months. And because our relationship was going so well, I decided I was going to invite her to my college formal. But I was so scared of the rejection. I was so scared that she would say no. I had to have my roommate call her and say he was me. I couldn't even pick up the phone to call the girl. Fast forward 20 years later. I like this girl. She's the founder of Spanx. I'm about to run that 100-mile run that I just told you guys about. And I want to get on her radar. So I call up her assistant. I said, Lisa, this is Jesse Itzler. I'm about to run 100 miles, and I will run the entire 100 miles in Spanx women's underwear for a testimonial or a donation from Sarah. She puts me on hold. She goes, Sarah, some lunatic is on the phone saying he's going to go run 100 miles in Spanx. She says, I think I know that lunatic. And a year later, she married the lunatic. Four kids. So what happened between this guy that was so scared, man, he couldn't even pick up the phone to call the girl, to this guy that's like, man, I'll run the whole damn race in underwear. In between those two extremes was a whole bunch of self-doubt. And self-doubt is the number one enemy to success. So if we could all beat up our own self-doubt, our own negative thoughts, we'd all be more successful in anything that we do. How do you do that? That's what I want to talk to everybody about today. So a couple of years ago, I'm running this race in San Diego. It's a relay race. I'm there with five friends. The format is I run a mile, you run a mile, you run a mile, Robbie, you run a mile. Whatever team runs the most amount of miles in 24 hours wins the race. I'm with five friends. Sitting to my left at the starting line is a guy that has nobody to relay with. He has no friends. He's his own team. 285-pound black guy, muscle on top of muscle, staring off into space looking pissed off. And the race is unsupported. That means they provide nothing. It's on a dirt, unlit parking lot in the middle of San Diego. You got to bring all your own supplies, even water. I just sold my company to Warren Buffett. I way overdid our supply. I had a Whole Foods truck pull up. I had a tent company set up. I had four masseuses for my five friends. This guy, three items. One bottle of water, one box of crackers, and a fold-up chair. I'm like, how's a guy that weighs 285 pounds going to run on water and crackers? And sure enough, at mile 70, 70 miles in because of his weight, he broke every single bone in both of his feet. He literally crushed his bones. And because he only had crackers and water, he taxed his body so much, he had kidney failure and he was peeing blood right down his leg. I'm like, man, we got to get this guy to a medic. Immediately, Mr. Race Director, airlift this guy out of here immediately. What does he do? He gets duct tape. He duct tapes his feet, picks himself up out of the chair, runs another 30 miles to get to his goal of 100, and then runs one more in case they miscounted. I got to meet him. I got to meet him. I got to meet, I gotta meet him because whatever secret sauce this guy has, whatever drive he has, if I could teach that to my kids, to my employees, if some of that rubbed off on me, every bucket of my life would be better. So I Google him. I learn he's a Navy SEAL with a crazy backstory. I pick up the phone and I cold call him, create your own luck. He says, man, I'll give you 15 minutes if you can meet me tomorrow in San Diego. 
I fly from New York where I'm living at the time on my own nickel to San Diego for a 15-minute lunch meeting. And five minutes into our lunch meeting, I realize I'm never going to get the secret sauce through a 15-minute lunch conversation because lasting change takes time. You don't get lasting change coming to a seminar. You get it by changing your daily habits, rituals, and mindset. And I wanted it. So out of nowhere, I looked at him. I said, you know what, man? Would you come live with myself and my family for, for, for 30 days? Now, as, um, my immediate reaction, he was like, my immediate reaction was like, I'm kidding. I mean, you look so pissed off. And I, I, I'm trying not to curse. I made a promise with myself, but I want to tell you exactly what he said to me. Is that okay? I don't want to offend anybody. After a minute of staring at me, he looked at me and said, you know what? If you're crazy enough to ask, to ask a guy like me to come live with you, motherfucker, I'm crazy enough to come. <laughs> okay. Three days later, he's at my breakfast table. So my wife calls me up. She's like, how'd the lunch meeting go? I'm like, the lunch meeting was good. It was good. He's coming to give it us. She's like, what? I'm like, he's coming to give it to us. He's coming to give it to us. She's like, I'm like, he's coming to live with us on Friday. Friday comes. I call him Seal. Seal comes in. I said, Seal, man, make yourself at home. My home is your home. He says, nah, I don't have a home. I said, no, make yourself at home. It's just an expression. He comes right over to me, nose to nose, and he goes, I don't operate in expressions. <laughs> it's going to be an amazing 30 days. He said, in fact, get your stuff together. I want to go out of the gym. I want to see how strong you are so we can map out the month. So we go down to the gym, we go to a pull-up bar. I can run a really long time in a dirt parking lot, but I'm not very strong. So we get up on the pull-up bar and I get eight pull-ups. It's a flat-out lie, man. I got five. <laughs> I get my three little dinky pull-ups. I drop down and he goes, all right, wait 30 seconds, do it again. I get back on the bar, I get two pull-ups. I drop down and he goes, wait 30 seconds, do it again. I get back on the bar, I barely get my damn chin over the bar, I drop down, my arms are all jacked up, I'm like, alright, cool, what's next? He goes, what's next is, we're not leaving here until you do 100 more. I said, 100 more? Like, that's maybe in Navy SEAL land that's possible, but that's impossible. I said, it's impossible. He says, I already know what your biggest problem is, what our biggest problem is. The limitations that we put on ourselves are self-imposed. The limitations that we put on ourselves are self-imposed, and I'm going to prove it to you right now. Man, get back on the bar and give me a damn pull-up. So I go over to the bar. I do a pull-up. I drop down. He goes, take your time. Walk around the gym. Do another one. I walk around the gym. I come back. I do another one. I repeated that process for two hours until I did 100 pull-ups. And when I was done, I, said to my, I, I thought to myself, if I'm under-indexing by 100 pull-ups, if I'm leaving 100 pull-ups on, on, on the sidelines in this little exercise, what are the areas of my life am I under-indexing in? Like if my sales court at Marquee Jet is 20 jet cards, guys, put me down on the, card, on the wall for 20. I'm good for 20 cards this month. Is that because I know with a little bit of effort I could probably get to 20? Or should I be like, man, put me down for 40. Put some pressure on my shoulders. Let me rip up the playbook and figure it out. He had a rule called the 40% rule. And his 40% rule is this. When, he said when your brain is, when you, when your brain is done, you're only at, when you think you're done, you're only at 40%. He 
He said, when you think you're done, you're only at 40%. Because it's a scientific fact. The way our brains are wired, the first time we experience pain or discomfort on any level, I'm not even talking about physical. I couldn't even call the girl. As a defense mechanism, our brain taps us on the shoulder and says, stop. It doesn't want us to be humiliated or embarrassed or in pain. Stop. When you ignore the tap on the shoulder, and you, you tap into this reserve tank that we all have. We just don't want to access it because it's uncomfortable. That's the difference between going through like, life like this and heroic success. Now, I don't know about you guys. I don't want to go through life like this. I don't want to go through life like this. I don't want to look back on my life and celebrate the fact that, yes, I was the 80% version of myself. I want to go through life like this. I want to experience. I want challenges. I want adventure. I don't want to be the 80% version of myself. Now, you could call it resilience, mental toughness, resolve, grit. grit. They say grit is the anti-self-doubt. Grit is the number one indicator of future success. If we all raise grittier kids, there's a much better chance they'd be successful. Now, obviously, you're not going to hire a Navy SEAL to come live with you to make you a little grittier, but you don't have to. There's a famous quote that I love. How you do anything is how you do everything. How you do anything is how you do everything. It's the little decisions that we all make every day that create an environment in our head of what it is we're becoming. Someone that's lazy and someone that attacks life someone that puts things off till tomorrow, someone that drives two hours because they want the referral. Let me give you an example. The other day I'm playing outside with my son. I'm, I'm hosing him down with the, wet, with the cold hose and my wife's like, sweetie, dinner's ready. And I drop the hose. I'm like, I'll get that tomorrow, man. It's just a hose. Let me go get this dinner. And as I'm walking into the house, I stop myself and I'm like, that's not just a hose. That's an indication of what I'm becoming. Lazy. It's okay to not finish what, I'm, what I started. I'll do it tomorrow. Maybe someone will pick it up for me. That's not just a hose. We have things like that that happen all the time in our life. And those little decisions that we don't think are a big deal create this environment of who it is we are becoming. Now, I wrote a book about our journey called Living with the Seals. Some of you might have read it. Some of you might have not. But I want to share a couple of takeaways from the book and some of the things that I'm doing come 2021 to ensure that I, I don't go through life like this. So the first thing is when SEAL came into my life, he was highly disciplined. Everybody in this room is disciplined. You wouldn't be here if you weren't disciplined. But if you're like me, you struggle with discipline in multiple areas of your life. So when he, when he was there, I, when, I, when he left, I wrote a contract with myself. I'm going to share it with you guys. Not right now. But at the end of the contract with myself, it took like two minutes. It's a list of all my non-negotiables. At the end of my contract with myself that I read every morning, are these two words. And if you use the words the way I use them, they will radically change your life. And the words are so simple. Remember tomorrow. Remember tomorrow. When you have a split-second decision to make, big or small, remember how those decisions will impact you tomorrow. Robbie, you want to drop out of the marathon at mile 18 because you got a little blister? That's cool until tomorrow when you can't get it back. You guys want to go out after the conference and drink tequila, take your shirt off and be the life of the conference here at the University of Georgia. That's cool. Until you show up at work tomorrow. 
Remember how your decisions will impact you tomorrow. How, I know this is a business conference. How many people in here have a personal mission statement? Zero? Who's in charge of this conference? What's the first thing every business in America does when they start their business? They write a mission statement because it gives them permission to say no to the things that don't move the needle in the most important buckets of their lives. I'm going I'm to show you guys how to write a personal mission statement. I had a feeling the answer would be low. But I highly, I'm going to give you guys homework. Two minutes of homework. I'm going to give you Oprah's mission statement, Richard Branson's, mine, and my contract with myself. I want you guys to just, when you go home, there's a little bit of homework. Write a quick mission statement. What drives you? What's important? What are your non-negotiables? Make a quick contract with yourself of how you want to live your life. Do we have a, a slide here that we can show? Is there a slide? Yeah, can you guys put that up? The other slide. Yes. So if you just text in your phone one word, my mission, to this number, I'll send you a template on how to do it. And it'll be super helpful. And a version of my contract with myself. We talked a little bit about how lasting change takes time. We talked a little bit about daily habits. Um, I want to share, just spend about two minutes on some of my habits because I think they're important and, and you guys can implement them if you think it makes sense. Everybody talks about the importance of morning routines. And morning routines are really important. But I'm a much bigger believer in evening routines. Because to me, I can't just wake up and wing it. The competition's too good. I'm not good enough to wake up. So my day starts the night before, where I very simply write down what is, what is my schedule for the next day, and then I wake up and I execute. What do the top CEOs in the world have? What happens to them every day? They walk in, they have three assistants, their assistants hand them a schedule, 9 a.m., 9.15, 10.30, you got to go here, 10.45, conference call, 11 o'clock, we're going to pick you up and go. Nobody here is three assistants. I'm three assistants. We write down the night before so we're efficient and effective and we don't wake up and just wing it. If everybody in here, every month I add one winning habit to my traditional routine. If everybody in here in 2021 did this one thing, did everything the same that you did this year, but added one winning habit a month in 2021, your life's going to be much better. What does that look like for me? This year, in January, I'm like, I don't drink enough water. I'm going to drink 100 ounces of water. February, I'm never going to be late to another meeting. March, I'm done. I stop eating at 7 o'clock p.m. April, I'm going to add a 10-minute-a-day meditation practice to my life. Think about what your life would look like in 2021 if you just added one... Bobby, what'd you do in 2012? Don't answer. What'd you do in 2014? Sir, what'd you do eight days ago? Most of you couldn't tell me because we're living life in routine. And then you wake up and you're 70, 80 years old. The average American gains two pounds from 35 to 70. Now you're overweight and you're having regrets. I can't do what I wanted to do. I can't do it. What's one thing in 2021 that you're going to do, regardless of the coronavirus, regardless if sales are down, that are going to define your year? If you very simply add one big event and 12 winning habits, start your night the day before, you're going to have an unbelievable 2021. Here's why it's important. The day we wake up, we all go on this bus ride. We get in, the, we get in this little bus, little baby. We get the steering wheel, and boom, the bus starts going. Now, you don't need me to tell you it goes fast, but all of a sudden, your bus ride starts going. 
And then maybe Robbie is, is, uh, is in senior in high school. They're like, Robbie, you better enjoy it. It's going to go fast. And then Robbie's in college. Maybe Robbie meets somebody. He gets married, and all of a sudden that child is 10. In eight years, you're going to be an empty nester. And the bus keeps going. The bus doesn't care if you get sick. The bus doesn't care if you're lazy, man. The bus doesn't care if you take a day off. It just keeps going. There's no reverse on the bus. You can't get days back on the bus. The bus just keeps going until one day, boom, it's over. I'm 52 years old. This much of my life, it's over. I can't get it back. I got this much left. I want to do this much stuff in this much amount of time. Hey, everyone. I want to take this pause for a second for you to think about how awesome this would be to hear live and in person. I cannot describe the energy and impact from sitting in that room listening to Jesse talk at the Stronger Business Summit. Guess what? You can have that same experience also. October 8th, 2021, the Classic Center, Athens, Georgia. Put it on your calendar Stronger Business Summit 2021. You don't want to miss this. Now back to Jesse. Now, I don't care if you're divorced, overweight, broke, struggling to get a sale, just starting your business. I couldn't care, man. All of that's all I care. That's in the past. I don't even own a marquee jet hat. I don't have a Zico hat. All I care about is from today till the end of the bus ride, and you never know when it's going to end. How do we maximize this? This. I have a, a quote I look on my wall every single day when I get up, and that quote is, I didn't come this far to only come this far. Nobody in this room came this far to only come this far. You wouldn't be here. Now, I don't want to get, I'm about to get it through. I'll have a couple of questions and answers. I know we got a little bit of time. I don't want to get, bring this energy down, but who here believes they're going to die? Show of hands if you really believe you're going to die. Nobody, does anyone not think they're going to die? Show of hands if you have your graveyard plot picked out. Yeah, you, you know you're going to die, but you don't believe anything's going to happen to you anytime soon. Man, as an entrepreneur, we got to live our life with urgency. As parents, we got to live our life with urgency. You want to make changes to your business? You got to do it with urgency. You want to change your habits, your rituals, your daily routines? Man, you better do it before that bus stops. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of The Entrepreneur Adventure, like and subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook at The Entrepreneur Adventure or head to our website, www.theentrepreneuradventure.com. We'll see you next time.